You are tuned in to Ecnecron, a Death to the World podcast, done in conjunction with St. Timothy Orthodox Church in Lompoc, California. Recordings, lectures, and readings to inspire truth-seeking and soul-searching amidst a modern age of nihilism and despair. We're going to start this journey into um, Genesis. And... um, I have it scheduled for six weeks, but when we get to the creation of man in the fall, we might have to expand it a little bit, so it might go seven or eight weeks, depending on what we can get through. Um, I'm going to try to keep them an hour long each, but there, as you can see, the pages are a little bit longer than usual, so we'll try to get through as much as we can um, in the amount of time. That we have, but there's a lot to cover because this book um, is incredibly well documented by the fathers. Um, a lot of our theology is reflected in it, um, so it's an incredibly good book to uh, begin to study. And um, as we'll as we'll talk about, there's a lot of predispositions and preconceived ideas about Genesis. And the world around us that we also need to examine um, as well when looking into this book because it inevitably will pop up in our unconsciousness and um, give us sort of certain prejudices uh, when we look, especially at the first few chapters um, of Genesis. So I'll be working off a few different books. These are some of them, um, and I brought them as always. If you guys want to look through them um, and purchase them, um, the first is St. Basil the Great. This is called On the Human Condition. Um, These are uh, different homilies by St. Basil. This also has some of his rules in here. There's monastic rules in here, which we talked about when we were talking about the Desert Fathers. Um, But these are what the origin of humanity and what it means to be created in God's image, things like that. Um, All patristic teachings from the 4th century. Um, another of the greats is St. John Chrysostom, and this is homilies on Genesis 1 through 17. Um, you can find this. This is, a, this is a Roman Catholic translation, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's a good um, source to have. Um, the other one is First Created Man by St. Simeon the New Theologian. This is, you know, St. Simeon is a little bit later um, in, in, in the church life, but um, nevertheless, he has a really good thing on what it me- what it was to be the fir- what what Adam was created to be you know what we are created to be and so he goes through everything of what it means to be created in the image of God and what it mean and then what it means to be the new Adam right when when Paul talks about Christ as the new Adam what is that what does that mean uh, for us so he goes through that a lot in, in there and then we'll probably use this book um, later for a series that I'll do following this but this is the, spirit, the, the Therapy of Spiritual Illnesses. It's a three-volume series by Jean, Dr. Jean-Claude Larcher, and it just goes through um, the fallen nature of man, right? And the passions, the virtues, and uh, how do we heal ourselves from the spiritual illnesses that we have um, in our own life. And a lot of this talk will be indebted to this book, which unfortunately is out of print, right now, but it's this tome um, called Genesis Creation in Early Man. A lot of it um, is Father Seraphim's talks, but it's also some of his writings and works and research. 
and then the monasteries research that has followed him which th with things coming out in English from Greek and Russian that he didn't have he reposed in 1982 so things from his time till now that we didn't have before have been compiled in here as long uh, along with quotes from modern saints like Saint Paisios of Manathos and St. Porfirios and Yakovos of Evia, some of these more recent fathers that he didn't know at the time um, being here in California um, are compiled inside this book. So it's a great treasure trove of a resource, even just for patristic commentary. You know, you can go to, I want to see what Genesis 1-3 is, and you can open this up and see quotes from various fathers on what Genesis 1-3 means. So he'll, he'll quote St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose of Milan, uh, so west and east, um, and you'll get a good glimpse of what the fathers taught um, on Genesis itself. So, but today we're not going to jump into Genesis 1-1 uh, just yet. We're just going to lay the groundwork of how we're going to go through um, Genesis how, and how we're going to approach it. Um, so the first question is really why do we study Genesis or why should we study Genesis? And it is because uh, it holds essential keys for us on the path of salvation. Like I said on Sunday, it, it, um, we, we are trying to get back to paradise and even beyond paradise. Right? So we have to know what paradise is and was. We have to know what the first created man was and how he was created. If we talk about Christ as the new Adam, what, what does that mean for our salvation? If we are supposed to become like Christ, the new Adam, what was Adam? What was he created to be? What was his purpose, right? How was he created? And so if our purpose is to get back to becoming, to entering back into the gates of paradise, and this is reflected all, especially throughout our Lenten hymns, when the gates of paradise are shut on Judgment Sunday, right? All the um, hymns throughout Clean Week are about repenting in order to get back into paradise. So what does that mean for us when we you know, look at Genesis and um, how, do we, uh, how do we understand it so that we can go back to paradise, so we can become um, what Adam was created to be? So um, it, it's good because we have to, under, we have, to have an understanding uh, of this, a patristic understanding of this. And if we don't, we, we kind of lose out on this fullness of the teaching of salvation and deification. Um, but also when we approach the scriptures, and especially uh, Genesis in particular, uh, we have to be very, very careful of pitfalls um, that we are all subject to and have to be honest with ourselves about them. We live in a time where there are so many movies, opinions of, po of popular culture and conflicting sectarian teachings that influence how we approach scripture, right? There's many movies on things in Genesis. There's many commentaries out there by Protestants and Roman Catholics and all sorts of stuff um, that influence us before we even approach this um, book. So we have to be able to um, put some of that, put that stuff aside and detect when that stuff pops up um, so that we can approach the scriptures um, in a pure way. And we'll talk about how, how we should do that. So um, whether we like it or not, uh, these things do have some sort of influence if we're not careful. 
So we have to be honest with ourselves about them so we don't approach Scripture with preconceived notions, particularly when looking at the book of Genesis. So Father Seraphim lays out a few of these pitfalls and goes into them a little bit more in detail. Um, But he says um, these are the pitfalls. The pitfalls are to approach Genesis in order to find something scientific within the text. Whether that is to agree with a particular scientific theory like evolutionism or to disagree with those theories, right? To approach Genesis on this basis um, is not a full approach. It's, it it um, disregards a lot of the scriptures. Another pitfall is to look at it as sheer po- poetry or cultural history, um, which many... Um, biblical scholars, secular biblical scholars would approach um, the book of Genesis. Um, To approach it as a product of religious imagination that has nothing to do with science, right? Something uh, when we completely interpret it in an allegorical sense and leave nothing literal um, to be interpreted from the book. Um, So all of these pitfalls, in some way or another, they beg the question, how literally do we take Genesis? This is kind of the the big stumbling block with looking at especially the first few chapters of Genesis. How literally uh, do we take it? How allegorically um, do we take it? So Father Seraphim lays out a few different extremes. He says Protestant fundamentalists would tell us that all or virtually all uh, of the book is to be taken in a literal way. Right. And this has its own difficulties. Uh, when we examine the fathers, especially if we are uh, told to take everything literally, it, it um, will throw us off with, with a lot of things because the fathers don't always take the scripture entirely literally, right? Um, so Father Seraphim says, we don't have words, for example, to describe literally how something can come out of nothing. There is no word for it, right? Um, how does God speak? Right? Does he make a noise which resounds in, in, in an atmosphere that, that doesn't yet exist? Right? There's, he's asking these questions. There's no way that we can actually really take it entirely literally. Right? Um, and I think I have an example later in this, in, in this talk, but I'll just say it now. Like, for instance, we just read the preomial psalm, Psalm 103. Right? We say that the sun knoweth his going down. Right? We can't take that verse literally. There is... Um, there is a, a poetry also that is embedded within the text. We're not saying the sun has consciousness and knows when he goes down, right? Um, there is a poetry about it that is there. Um, so that exists within the text itself. So um, taking this Protestant fundamentalist view um, is very hard when uh, analyzing um, the scripture, especially in certain cases like that. Um, the opposite extreme is to interpret this book as being complete allegory, right? A poetic way of describing something that is much closer to our experience, Father Seraphim says. Uh, this also has many difficulties in the light of the fathers. And probably the most um, prime example of this is um, St. John uh, Damascene, Um, and Epiphanius of Jerusalem, they specifically state that an allegorical approach to these texts is heretical in their writings against Origenism. Origen um, was anathematized within the early church, and one of the things that was against him 
in being cast out and his teachings being a lot of his teachings being destroyed is that he approached the scriptures in an overly allegorical way right and so the fathers fought against this um, in, in in the church um, this extreme writes off genesis almost completely right and projects its own preconceived notions upon it Many have explained away the entire creation and the fall as complete allegories in order to fit a certain hypothesis on the world and to plug especially certain philosophies and sciences into the text by taking it in an allegorical, completely allegorical way. Um, just as an instance, I, uh, for, or a for instance, right? I had a professor um, in seminary who completely allegori- allegoricalized. I don't know how you say that. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, he interpreted the first few chapters of Genesis in, in a complete allegory in order to fit um, a very strict evolutionary um, theory that he held um, upon it. So he did not believe that Adam and Eve were actual people. Um, he believed certain, certain strange things like when God breathed into man, he breathed the soul into man, right? He gave him life. He believed that the first primate that evolved to a certain point, God breathed the soul within this primate, and then that's when kind of uh, life began as far as the spiritual life and the you know physical life, if you will, right? So he took a lot of allegory, um, a, an allegorical approach to Genesis, and um, completely did away with most of the text. You know, the fall was like something that wasn't even wasn't even there anymore, right? Um, and that because there one problematic thing, which we'll get into later, is that in order for evolution to occur, death has to reign on earth. But we teach, and it's very patristic. Um, and it does a lot of detriment to our theology when we do not teach it that death came after the fall, right? So you cannot have a, a series of deaths leading up to the creation of Adam and then his fall and then there be no consequence because death was already something that reigned on earth before it had happened, right? It's, it's backwards. And so um, when, but, but in order to fit this into scripture, Sometimes a complete allegorical approach is taken so that we can have our feet in both worlds. And many times, unfortunately, so that we don't look stupid in the, in the eyes of, of, of the modern world. So this leads to the third um, option, another extreme that Father Seraphim says, um, and it's a very common one, is basically a dysfunctional marriage between these two extremes. Right? And he says... Um, it is really a way out for a Christian to accept scripture, but also accept modern science um, that may contradict points in scripture in the fathers. And this view supposes that scripture is for spiritual edification, right? And science is for practical science purposes. So it separates the two into two different categories. So it says the sciences can, can analyze and and uh, look at the world and be able to uh, come to conclusions scientifically and that religion has its own spiritual purpose. And so we have our own uh, things over here for spiritual edification, but for scientific edification, here's them. But for like a scientific edification or the 
um, understanding of the world physically, we look to the sciences, right? So we separate them and we put them in two different camps um, so that we can kind of live in both worlds, if you will. So um, these are held as two distinct approaches or categories that hold their own truths, right? And this marriage of extremes has its own conflicts with the Holy Fathers and the traditions uh, of the church. So Father Seraphim says, according to this view, to this extreme, Genesis belongs in one category and scientific truth or reality in another category. Genesis has little, if anything, to do with any kind of truth, whether literal or allegorical. Therefore, one doesn't need to think about the question. Uh, you read Genesis for spiritual uplift and poetry, and the scientists will tell you what you need to know about the facts of the world, uh, of the world and man's beginning. Right? So it's in two different distinct categories. Um, so we see this happen over and over again, not just with sciences, but also with certain philosophies, right? Um, and even sectarian views um, that will try to rationalize parts of scripture in order to fit it into um, the, the modern understanding or way of thinking or some ideology that they hold. So in, it's backwards. Instead of, instead of uh, looking at modern life through a scriptural analysis in the eyes of the fathers. We're looking through the scriptures through a, a modern uh, analysis of it, right? So, like I said, we're coming to the scriptures, the preconceived idea about what this certain thing says and how we're going to fit it into our own understanding or the philosophy we might hold, right? So all these extremes... Uh, do not take Genesis seriously. And in order to take it seriously, we must find uh, the right key, if you will, to understanding it. And that's, of course, through the fathers of the church. We must get rid of our preconceived ideas about the text and allow the fathers of the church to interpret it for us. So one thing uh, to address right off the bat, so you know it's, it, it's clear, is we have to rid ourselves of the idea that Genesis is here to agree or disagree with our particular scientific theories because it is a book that is much more than that. And this goes back to the first pitfall Father Seraphim talks about. Whether we want to use, whether we, we take Genesis in order to use it to prove modern science, evolutionary science, or evolutionary theory, right? Or we want to take it and use it to prove creationist science. If we just approach Genesis in that way, um, we're doing the book an injustice and we're not getting to the depth of actually what it means and what it's there for, right? And Father Seraphim gives a great example of how uh, modern enlightened people try to do this when we try to uh, compensate uh, for scripture or the fathers in order to still look wise in the eyes of the world, uh, the eyes of scientific men and women today. So one of these problems is the so-called six days of creation. None of the fathers say that the six days of creation can be spread out in millions of years. Um, they are all very literal in their approach, and we'll get to the literal versus the symbolic, but this is one of the instances in which there really is no room in the fathers for us to take an, an allegorical approach to the six days of creation. There are a father or two 
that may allude to that we can't understand it as being 24 hours. But the reason why they do that is because they're saying that we are not at the point where we can understand what was happening really during that time. But these are really, um, maybe there's one or two fathers and these are exceptions, right? So we'll talk about two. It's not good for us to single out fathers and to use them to promote a certain idea. And modern academics do this all the time. And we'll get to this a little bit. Orthodox academics do this all of the time. But um, the six days of creation, for instance, even if they weren't 24-hour periods, what's very, very important about um, the text that the fathers talk about when they're talking about the six days is that everything is created on those days instantaneously, right? And they're not created through a series of deaths over millions and millions of years. It's something that is completely um, not a novel idea, especially um, throughout human history. We haven't really believed this uh, for, for very long, right? Um, so these are certain things that we do, right? In order for us to kind of look wise in the eyes of the world and to keep some kind of, I guess, scientific integrity, we will say, well, we don't really know how long the days were. They could be millions and millions of years each. And so, you know, it, it's this very loose allegorical approach to these days, right? Um, and so we have to look, what do the fathers do? How do they interpret it, right? How do they look at it? Is there room for that to wiggle it, you know, in there? And there are certain things about modern evolution, uh, evolutionary theories that, that just do not have room to get in there, and that, and that is one of them. Um, the other, like I said, that I mentioned is that uh, death only exists after the fall. This is a big thing, right? Uh, so there are um, things like that, and we'll kind of get to how, we, how we're going to talk about evolution going forward because the course isn't going to be about debating evolution, right? It's going to be about getting to um, the depth of the book of Genesis, but we will inevitably run into roadblocks that have to do um, with evolutionary theory, right? Um, so we will discuss them a little bit, but this is not going to be like a uh, patristic thing versus evolutionary evolutionary theory thing, right? Because, again, that would be falling into one of these pitfalls of just approaching Genesis in this uh, way. So these are the basic principles that we will keep um, during this entire lecture series. And these are principles that Father Seraphim put together for his lecture series. Um, and I just think they're very good points for us to keep during this entire time. Uh, me and you, right? Um, he says, the first thing above all else is that we are seeking truth, right? The text of Genesis holds divinely inspired truth about who God is, who we are, and what the world around us is, right? And that's why it is so disastrous to just approach Genesis with a scientific uh, bent or a philosophical bent or whatever it is because it, we're cover, uncovering who God is and we're coming, uncovering a very intimate 
part of our relationship with God, our own creation in his image, right? So there's a lot of depth. So we're going to get to the truth of what that depth is and what it means. Even if this truth is unusual or surprising or flies in the face of our preconceived notions, we have to push ourselves to accept what the church teaches because God is the author of all of truth, right? God is the author of all of truth. Um, scripture is divinely inspired. That's number two that we have to remember. We must come before it with trembling and humility. We will not disregard it as old-fashioned or missing context or isolated as if it does not have authority in dealing with the created world. This last part is we do it too often. Um, isolate scripture, the spiritual life of the church in one arena uh, and, and, and allow uh, certain modern philosophies or sciences to rule our life in another arena, right? We try to have our feet in different worlds and it doesn't work out um, too well. Uh, we will not offer our own explanations. So we will come ac across seemingly difficult passages and must familiarize ourselves with the Holy Fathers to help us understand what we are grappling with, if there is something that we have to offer, say if it's from modern philosophy or science, uh, that helps us understand the text, uh, may it be done with humility and caution, right? We will not seize isolated quotes from the fathers or scripture to prove um, certain points. This is the downfall of modern Orthodox academia, especially in, in regards to Genesis. Um, and may God spare us from it. <laughs> we are not here to dissect the fathers or prove our own theories, but to uncover very deep truths hidden in Genesis and what the fathers say about Genesis, right? Um, so as the example I gave earlier, there is just too much in, uh, in modern academia of taking one or two fathers that say certain things and saying, okay, now we have the green light to believe what we want to believe, right? We, and, and especially um, these things are taken in isolated, isolated text. So um, we have to not fall into that pitfall and uh, look at the entirety of patristic writings and also the, um, the scripture itself. So we can't just look at one father all of the time. We're going to be looking at multiple um, fathers and some of them throughout the centuries, okay? It is not necessary to accept every word from the fathers on Genesis. And I say this kind of with caution, um, but it's a good thing to understand because sometimes they used their natural sciences of their time to illustrate material in Genesis that is sometimes outdated, right? Um, but it is just as important to differentiate between their scientific and their theological points. This is very, very important because these fathers wrote at a certain time when they had certain sciences. And so they take the scriptures and they interpret them through their sciences sometimes to prove certain points. Not to prove the science of their time, um, but to prove certain points in Genesis that would maybe um, create more awe or inspiration in the reader, okay? It'd be like, say, right now, because we know more about space, for instance, if we use certain um, scientific data or knowledge we have about space and we apply it to certain parts of scripture that create inspiration and awe in the reader, but then they become outdated in 50 years, 
you know, that the research becomes outdated in 50 years. That is kind of like what the fathers were doing, right? So they used the science of their time to create awe and inspiration and illustrate points in Genesis. It's not necessarily that they're um, doing it to prove a scientific point of view, um, but later on that science maybe is outdated. And so we can't take them literally all of the time, right? Um, with, with, these, with these approaches. But um, it's good to differentiate between these kind of the, the theological points or scientific points. Um, respecting both their general and theological conclusions or insights. And um, the last, lastly, as Orthodox Christians, we are seeking to understand Genesis in a broader way, right? In a broader way. Like I said, if we just approach it with a scientific, this whole scientific debate in mind, we're, we're narrowing um, what this scripture actually means to us. So the Holy Fathers, um, the sure guide to our understanding scripture and all of the spiritual life. Genesis was one of the most common books that our greatest saints uh, have commentary on. So these are some of the works here, homilies on Genesis and the creation of the world by St. John Chrysostom, interpretation of the books of the Bible by St. Ephraim the Syrian, which by the way, St. Ephraim the Syrian was very, very versed in science, mathematics of his time. Same with St. John Chrysostom, uh, but he's especially known for it. The Hexamerion or the six days um, and on the human condition and on the origin of man. These are all by St. Basil the Great. Um, and then other hexamerions would be would be made, or hexamerons would be made, or the, it's translated the six days. Um, so there's one from St. Ambrose of Milan. He also wrote on uh, Cain and Abel as well, which is a commentary um, later on some later chapters of Genesis. Um, on the making of man by St. Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, the first created man by St. Simeon the Theologian, the New Theologian and others. Um, there's stuff that goes all the way up to... Um, um, St. John Chrysostom, and then now we have this by uh, Father Sarah from Rose, um, and things like that. So there is a lot out there. St. Uh, John of Damascus um, deals with creation and things like that. There's a lot, a lot, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of pages dedicated to even just the first few chapters of Genesis. Sometimes we think about the Father's only interpreting things from the New Testament, um, but there is so much of the Old Testament, particularly of Genesis, um, that, they, that they dove into. So the fathers will not give us all the literal answers uh, to questions we may have concerning Genesis. However, it is incredibly important to be familiar with their writing as they will point, writings as they will point us in the right direction um, in our basic principles, which we laid out um, that we'll keep during the course. And we must remember the Holy Fathers are our teachers and guides um, to understanding who God is through their experience and divine revelation. All right, so Paul writes to the Hebrews, he says, Remember your instructors who have spoken the word of God to you and, and whose, faith, uh, whose faith follow, considering the end of their life. Be not led away with curious and strange doctrines. Right? They are our teachers and our instructors. Father Seraphim writes, The Orthodox teaching of the Holy Fathers is not something of one age, whether ancient or modern. It has been transmitted in unbroken succession from the time of Christ and his apostles to the present day. There has never been a time when it was necessary to discover a lost patristic teaching, even when many Orthodox Christians may have neglected this teaching. 
as in the case, for example, in our own day, he says. It's true, uh, representatives were still handing it down and those who hungered to receive, to those who hungered to receive it. And he continues saying, we must go to the Holy Fathers rather in order to become their disciples, to receive the teaching of true life, the soul's salvation, even while knowing that by doing this, we shall lose the favor of this world and become outcasts from it. If we do this, we shall find the way out of the confused swamp of modern thought, which is based precisely upon abandonment of the sacred teaching of the Holy Fathers. Um, and he says it's essential for us to remember that there is no problem of our confused times which cannot find its solution by a careful and reverent reading of the Holy Fathers, whether the problem of the sects and heresies that abound today, or the schisms and jurisdictions, or whether the pretense of the of spiritual life put forth by the so-called charismatic revival or the subtle temptations of modern comfort and convenience whether complex philosophical questions such as evolution or the straightforward moral questions of abortion euthanasia or birth control in all these questions the holy fathers and our living fathers who follow them are our only sure guide right so he's he's very um straightforward about this and i think this is um, throughout all of the patristic witness that the Holy Fathers are our guide. They are our teachers in understanding the spiritual life, understanding the church, um, understanding um, Holy Scripture. So science falls short in the face of the Holy Fathers. And it's really um, essential for us to understand this in going forward because what we're doing here is we're setting forth a hierarchy of knowledge. right? The Holy Fathers are on the top of this hierarchy of knowledge. Science is base knowledge. And uh, we'll get into it maybe in another course more in depth, um, but it's, these are just some main things that we should remember when we're thinking about science and we're kind of doing this fathers versus science thing, right? The Holy Fathers know more about creation than a scientist especially when they are inspired to write commentary on Genesis or on creation itself. This holds true whether the Holy Father lived in the first century and the scientist lives now or vice versa. And you must remember this throughout um, this entire course. Uh, the physical sciences fall under the category of fallen knowledge, according to the Holy Fathers. That is, it is a knowledge gained from focus only and strictly on the material world. It has become the primary focus of man in order to fill the void left by a lack of spiritual knowledge. Right? So when we fell, we lacked spiritual knowledge. In order for man to make up for this void of the lack of spiritual knowledge, he has given himself over to focused on material knowledge. Right? And the reason... He said, you know, the fathers say that this doesn't make it evil, doesn't make science evil, doesn't make the natural sciences evil, but it does mean that they, that is a not a neutral endeavor, they say, because it is relative. This is what St. Gregory Palamas says. He says, it is relative to those who make use of it and appears according to the thought of those who make use of it and easily takes the form which is given it by the point of view of those who possess it. Right, so this uh, material knowledge and the and the physical sciences often 
um, get interpreted and take on a character of the discoverer of those knowledges, right? Or, or of that knowledge, knowledges, of that knowledge, right? Um, so it, it is easily um, something that is not neutral, um, easily persuade, persuaded by the fallen man who is um, indebted to it or has discovered it or who has spent his whole life's work on it. This type of knowledge can easily fall prey to the passions and take on shape according to the passions of the observer or teacher. St. Isaac the Syrian writes, When knowledge follows after the desire of the flesh, it takes to itself wealth, vainglory, finery, and bodily comfort. It becomes attached to the rational wisdom that adapts itself to the rule of this world and never ceases to invent and renew techniques and sciences. It bears all the crowns the body, uh, it bears all the crowns for the body in this visible world. Right? He also continues and he says that carnal knowledge or material knowledge is called naked knowledge, for it is divested of all concern for God, and it wears out the intellect by depriving the latter of reason, spiritual reason. Since the body dominates the intellect, it only cares about this world. And so um, what the fathers are saying is that physical sciences... It's, they're not like evil, but they can uh, be easily subject to the interpretation of who is ever observing, right? And many times they are um, interpreted philosophically rather than um, just neutrally, right? We saw this with COVID, for instance, right? You can't gather with your family in a home or in a church, but you can because that's dangerous and that's the science we believe we follow the science but you can be with thousands of people on the street protesting and lighting fires to buildings and that is safe right so there is a con definite contradiction in what is happening here right but is because it is it is a science that has been uh, interpreted through the eyes of uh, certain politicians or people right so the physical sciences, I mean, I think we see this a lot. We see this all of the time. I mean, we could go through various, various um, things in our society, right? People calling abortion health care, right? Um, things like this. So, you're, so material science and these physical sciences can just be interpreted um, through the eyes of the beholder, right? Um, and, and the teacher, so this is why the fathers say that it is a lower type of knowledge. It is a lower type of knowledge. Um, the other thing that is uh, interesting is that the fathers say, and we may get to this later, the fathers say that um, physical knowledge or the, the well, I guess what we call the physical sciences are all uh, discovered outside of the person. It is observed outside of the person, right? Man was not created to spend his whole life outwardly, but to spend his life inwardly, right? And we'll get to this when we talk about the fall. And so divine knowledge is found inwardly through purification and contact with the living God. And so this is the difference between physical sciences and the sciences what we call the sciences of the fathers or the spiritual science of the fathers is that a modern atheist scientist for instance maybe right let's just take that may discover something on out in, in the outward 
out, out of himself in this world, observe something, discover something, right? He might have a certain bent on it or take on it because of his predisposition um, and his philosophy regarding the world. The fathers, um, through purification, self-denial, come in contact with God, find the kingdom of heaven within, and that knowledge comes forward out of them. So when they approach the scriptures, they're approaching it in a, in, in a pure way, right? When they approach the world, they're approaching it in a pure way. So you've, you've all heard me before talk about this, sto- this story, for instance, in the life of St. Um, uh, Porfirios, where um, he was illumined by God and he had this spiritual vision where he can, even though he was on Mount Athos, he can see the fish in the water and the sea. He could see through rocks. He can observe certain things about creation became illumined to him, right? Um, this was something that came from within through a purification that came within. So he was able to... Um, I guess, you know, if he didn't know about a certain kind of fish or didn't know about things in the ocean, he would be able to expound on those things because God has illumined him to observe and to see those things, right? And so this is the difference between science that is base and material and subject to our uncorrupted ideas and divine knowledge, with it, which is revelation with God that springs forth from a pure heart, right? So this is the difference between um, the fathers and science, and we have to hold and understand there's a hierarchy there, right? Um, they can't coexist as uh, the top of, of the food chain, right? The, the fathers are always going to supersede, um, in, in especially these, uh, these arenas of, of Holy Scripture. So um, finally, the fathers state that those who study this world without a concept of the spiritual life, view the world upside down and chase after phantoms as if they're chasing truth. St. Athanasius says that when man had fallen and he rejected all goodness, he started to make up things that were not real, right? And um, so this is what happens with us. And, and we try to fill this void with material things, right? And, um, and then this is my favorite quote uh, from St. John Chrysostom regarding this whole phenomenon he says and these types of people that look at the world um, without a concept of the spiritual life and reject god saint john chrysostom says they are stupider than asses since they call uncertain those things which are more visible uh, than what we see with our earthly eyes so what he's saying there is that the spiritual life is more perceivable and those who just follow after the physical sciences and reject God are stupider than asses because they are kind of looking with their head down and the very, very obvious thing of the spiritual life and the existence of God is right in front of them, right? So let's get into um, a little bit. Um, This is the great stumbling block, as I laid out earlier, literal versus symbolical interpretation, is the great stumbling block in approaching Genesis. Um, both of these views can cause us to jump to conclusions and even disregard or misinterpret whole portions of Scripture themselves. Um, our key to understanding uh, Scripture is asking the question, how did the fathers interpret it generally and in specific passages? Some examples from the Holy Fathers. Um, these are ones that Father Seraphim has laid out amongst uh, many others that he has. St. Macarios the Great, whom you would think, um, you know, we learned about St. Macarios the Great in our 
um, you know, Lives of the Desert Fathers. Makaros is a great, incredibly um, large spiritual figure. We would think um, by some of his writings and his prayers that he would interpret the scriptures in a more mystical way um, or a more allegorical way. Yeah, this is what he says. He says that paradise was closed and that a cherubim was commanded to prevent man from entering it by a flaming sword. Of this, we believe that in that invisible fashion, uh, it was indeed as it is written. And at the same time, we find that it occurs mystically in every soul, right? So he has, he says, this is literal. There was a cherubim. There were doors that were shut. There was a flaming sword. This is literal. Yet at the same time, there is also a mystical and allegorical thing that we can take from this. That we have this also in our own life. And this is reflecting the hymns of the church, right? We have this in our own life, that we're barred out of paradise, and we are weeping to get back in, right? St. Gregory the Theologian, um, he calls the tree of knowledge allegorically as contemplation. And this is a very interesting uh, and, and a part, of, part of the fathers, and it's good to bring up, because uh, many uh, modern Orthodox academics that want to interpret um, Genesis allegorically will use this portion of the fathers and cherry pick it and see, say, look, Gregory the theologian is saying that the tree of knowledge is allegorical. It's contemplation. It's not a physical tree that Adam took from, right? It's not a physical tree that he saw, right? It means contemplation, right? He has this allegorical approach to it. And this is why we can't cherry pick things from the fathers because in looking at how he takes generous, uh, generally how he takes Genesis, he takes it very literal. Adam was a man. Eve was a woman. There were rivers in paradise. There were birds. There were this. There were that. Um, and he's very um, um, literal about it, right? So while the fathers have a very literal approach, they also have an allegorical approach, when it, especially when it comes to taking out uh, lessons for the spiritual life. St. Basil writes of the actions of creation in Genesis as literal water, grass, etc. as we read them. And he continues saying, some have attempted by false arguments and allegorical interpretations to bestow on the scripture a dignity of their own understanding, right? So they want to put on uh, scripture a certain allegorical approach that fits their own understanding. But theirs is the attitude of one who considers himself wiser than the revelations of the Spirit and introduces his own ideas and pretense of an explanation. Therefore, let it be understood as it is written. Right? He's very literal about it. Um, and this is in the Hexameron. St. Uh, Ephraim uh, the Syrian, he writes, No one should think that the creation of six days is an allegory. It is likewise impermissible to say that what seems, according to the account, to have been created in the course of six days was created in a single instant, right? So he's saying we cannot say, we, we have to say this a literal six days, we cannot coll collapse it into one day. That's what he's saying. And likewise, that certain names presented in the account either signify nothing or signify something else. And um, 
This is, he's fighting a lot of heresies during this time. And St. Basil is the same thing, fighting heresies during this time um, that are projecting certain allegorical approaches upon the first, cha- first few chapters of Genesis. And we see this happening. Um, unfortunately, it's recycled um, today. St. John Chrysostom. And this is an interesting thing from St. John Chrysostom because um, there are two schools in the, in, in the ancient church. Um, there was an Alexandrian school and an Antiochian school, right? And um, St. John Chrysostom would be an inheritor of the, the Antiochian school, um, which took uh, scripture in a more literal way. But we also have people from the uh, saints from the Alexandrian school that take these chapters of Genesis also in a very literal way. St. John Chrysostom says, Perhaps those who live to speak from their own wisdom here will also not allow that the rivers are actually rivers, nor that the waters are precisely waters, but will instill in those who decide to listen to them the idea that they, under the names of rivers and waters, represented something else. But I entreat you, let us not pay heed to these people. Let us stop up our hearing against them and let us believe divine scripture and follow what is written in it. Let us strive to preserve in our souls sound dogmas. Right? So even at the time of the fathers, there's this push to fit scripture into certain philosophies or sectarian ideas um, about the world. So these are just some examples of how the Holy Fathers lean quite literally um, into the text. However, we do not leave it at that because there are allegorical and symbolic uh, spiritual meanings that uh, should be pulled out of the text. Uh, Therefore, it is both something that is literal and symbolic. Um, There is both meanings to Holy Scripture and the Holy Fathers help us to detect where these things are. And and, and both may exist in the same verse and phrases in Scripture, just like in St. Macarius' case, right? That being said... There are also obvious metaphors in Scripture um, which the fathers do not take literally. And this is, this is the example I gave earlier. The son knoweth he is going down, right? We don't believe the son has consciousness and goes down because he knows it. There are also things the fathers tell us not to interpret in a literal way. And many examples exist in Genesis, but these are mostly what Father Seraphim identifies as anthropomorph- anthropomorphic statements made of God as though he were a man who walks, gets angry, talks, etc. And we see that a lot in Genesis. Um, and are ascribed by the writers of Scripture to help us understand a spiritual reality that cannot be put into human terms. Right? Uh, an example of this is that God planted things in paradise. We should not literally think that God was walking around with a shovel, digging holes and planting trees in paradise. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Was that? It was a pointed stick. Yeah. So, so there's there are certain things we should not take literally, right? Um, but they're to help us understand um, certain attributes about God, and sometimes to help us understand um, Christ in the in Genesis itself, right? So when we hear about God walking through the garden. Right to call Adam and Eve, we should not really be thinking that God, literally in flesh as a human being, is walking through the garden, right? But we have to take that as as this um, this uh, uh, prophecy 
of Christ becoming man and calling all of mankind back to himself. And this is referenced in, in the church uh, hymnography all of the time, right? Especially during Holy Week. Um, on Holy Tuesday, we, we read about how the woman in the, in the hymn of Cassiani, the, the woman wiped the feet of he who tread upon the ground in paradise, right? So um, these are like the, deep, the deeper meanings to scripture that we don't take just uh, you know on, on a literal grounds and that's it. And this is also, um, for instance, when, when Christ describes fire and hell. We are not to um, think literally that there are flames just like we see in our barbecue in hell, right? There, there are things that are spiritual which cannot be explained in human terms and yet the fathers get or the, or the gospel writers get as close as they can to we, what we have in human terminology to describe a spiritual event or a spiritual reality, right? There is not literal scientific meanings in Genesis per se. So it is read by each generation as applies to his own understanding of the world. <coughs> there is no teaching on the way in which heavenly bodies move, for example. This kind of was brought up in the West, um, in the Roman Catholic Church. We don't really need to get into it. But um, in Scripture, there's nothing that really tells us literally, that we should take literally, um, about the way the heavenly bodies move, right? Things in space move, how the cosmos moves. Um, but the recent discovery of space and the movement of planets, for example, only adds to the grandeur of Genesis. It does not detract from it, does not take away from it, does not make it more um, primitive and what we have now more enlightened. Um, the same is said about the teachings of the Holy Fathers, as we touched on already. Some of their reflections on Genesis are characterized by the science of their time, um, which can be out of date but their theological reflections stand the test of time and are unaffected by modern criticism. And many times, just like scripture, um, it can open up certain grandeur about what the saints had said and didn't know about um, through physical science at that time, but are right about and have been proven through modern science of today, right? Um, when scripture and the theology of the fathers is overtly contradicted, though, we must rely on the true scientists, which are the fathers, who, lit, who have seen scripture through divine revelation, right? And um, the thing is, is that philosophies and sciences have come into popularity and faded over time, come into popularity and faded over time. And we do not want to be people who um, reject certain things about the scriptures and the fathers in order to attach ourselves to fading Scientists, fading philosophies, even if they base themselves on science. Right? So the last point that is important for us to understand about Genesis is what kind of text exactly is Genesis? Um, because there are a lot of modern theories about what Genesis is, um, how we got Genesis, when it was written, all this kind of stuff. Um, there is a popular anti-religious view that Genesis came into being as a conglomeration of various pagan texts about the creation of the world and compiled and put together. Um, some say that it was Moses that put it together. Others say that later it was put together. Um, but 
But um, nevertheless, the base is the same, that all of these pagan um, ideas about the creation of the world came together, were sifted out, and put into this book of Genesis. Um, so the underlying belief here is that um, any kind of uh, view on creation or creationism is backwards. Uh, it's for primitive people. It's devoid of science. And uh, it's what older pagan, uncivilized people believed, right? It's something that's antiquated, something that uh, we can look at as kind of a, a, a nice history um, lesson, but it's not something that we, can, we should actually take literally or um, really apply uh, to our lives, right? Um, even the belief that Moses compiled Genesis through recording the oral traditions handed down to him is erroneous and finds no, common, uh, no place in the common teaching of the fathers, right? So the teaching that Moses was taught by um, ancestors, the creation of the world, and that he wrote it down and compiled it, um, a tradition that's passed down to the Jews, is also backwards and it um, doesn't have any um, basis in the teaching of the fathers um, because it makes Genesis the work of human wisdom and a, and a type of guesswork that has been passed down, right? So we talked a little bit already about knowledge based on pure physical realities, but it is good to understand a different type of knowledge. Uh, we touched on a little bit, a higher one that the fathers say proceeds from man's natural capabilities um, and comes through divine revelation. So this type of knowledge, divine knowledge, comes from within, through finding the kingdom of heaven within. It is a knowledge that is reached through purification of the soul. So St. Isaac describes this kind of knowledge as a spiritual state. He says, and from this one is already exalted in his mind, to that which, is, which preceded the composition making of the world. When there was no creature, no, he, no heaven, nor earth, nor angels, nothing of that which was brought into being, and how God, solely by his good will, suddenly brought everything from non-being into being, and everything stood before him in perfection. So, according to the fathers, especially St. Ambrose of Milan, St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom, Moses was a prophet of the past. All right? That is, he beheld creation as if he was present in creation. The same way that St. John the Evangelist perceived the apocalypse and was able to record the book of Revelation that we have. Right? He was taken up into spiritual rapture and recorded what he saw with his own eyes. Now, many of the fathers say that a spiritual state is to be able to perceive this, right? Even in St. John the Latter, once we get to a spiritual state of illumination, that man, because of his contact with God, is able to perceive things about creation that other men cannot, because he is, he is close to the author of it all. Just like I gave this... Um, this um, story of the life in the life of St. Porphyrios, right? St. Porphyrios didn't need um, scuba gear to go down into the depths of the ocean. He didn't need magnifying glasses to look at certain things. He didn't need x-ray machines or something to look beyond uh, rocks or whatever it may be. Um, he was able to perceive these things because of his closeness to God and the divine revelation. He was, taking up, he was taken up into spiritual rapture, 
right? And that's how he perceived it. And so the fathers say that this is actually a state that man gets to once he climbs the ladder, right? The ladder of divine ascent, right? As he purifies himself, there are certain mysteries bestowed to him. And one of the mysteries in the Christian life through purification is a knowledge of the physical realm through divine eyes and a knowledge of creation through divine eyes, right? So Moses, who was able to speak to God face to face, was granted this vision of being able to behold creation, right? A prophet isn't necessarily somebody who predicts the future. It's somebody who takes a revelation from God and expounds it to the people, okay? So Moses was a prophet of the past. He was taken up into divine rapture and he beheld creation as it happened and transcribed it for the people. This is the patristic understanding of how we receive the book of Genesis. St. Basil writes, This man, Moses, who is made equal to the angels, being considered worthy of the sight of God face to face, reports to us those things which he heard from God himself. Okay? So the early chapters of Genesis ought to be approached as a prophecy, a sacred revelation from God and above worldly wisdom. It's in this hierarchy. Father Seraphim, recognizing this, he wrote, um, Let us then try to enter into the world of the Holy Fathers and their understanding of the divinely inspired texts of Genesis. Let us love and respect their writings, which in our confused times are a beacon of clarity, which shines most clearly on the inspired text itself. Let us not be quick to know better than they. And if we think we have some understanding they did not see, let us be humble and hesitant about offering it. Knowing the poverty and fallibility of our own minds, let them, be, let, let, let them open our minds to understanding God's revelation. Right? So there is a certain hierarchy that Father Seraphim obviously um, gives out right? um, and lays forward before going forward in Genesis. And um, it's, very, it's very pertinent for us to, um, and it behooves us to remember this hierarchy of knowledge as we go through um, these texts. Because there are some things when we get to in the Fathers, right, that may sound silly and completely contradictory. And um, they may be hard to swallow. But nevertheless, this, these are the divine teachers of, of, of the spiritual life, of how we understand the world itself, how we understand God. And so while things might be surprising at the same time, um, we have to do what Father Seraphim did himself, which is to crucify his mind and let the fathers resurrect it. Because he was a, he was a genius, and he was, he was very much into the natural scientists and, uh, and, and, and in uh, modern evolutionary theory. He studied it um, in college, and he was a profound believer in it. It's what made him an atheist. Um, and he studied a lot of these philosophers in their own languages um, because he was so devoted to this cause. And so um, for him, when he became uh, Orthodox Christian, especially became a monk, his whole um, disposition towards the teachings of the fathers in the church is that they know better than me. I must crucify my mind and allow them to resurrect it. Right. So he was still very sharp in looking at these things, but nevertheless, he had a... Um, 
he had this correct uh, understanding of a hierarchy of knowledge. So let's just say, um, you know, like uh, evolution, evolutionary theory is probably like the elephant in the room, right? It's why um, many, some people have just come here um, to hear about evolutionary theory and, and that kind of a thing. Um, but um, it's good to make a few things clear about it during the lecture. Um, so during this lecture, like I said earlier, um, we'll need to touch on points of evolutionary theory um, in the same way that the fathers had to deal with the same thing um, during their, their times. There were science that contradicted uh, divine revelation at their time and scripture at their time. Um, there will be points of our own, for our own edification that, we'll need, that we will find it necessary to take a short dive into these subjects. We're not going, going to go um, into depth. Um, to them uh, in them because our main goal is to find what Genesis means to Orthodox Christians in the light of the fathers and for our own spiritual edification our own spiritual life um, uh, Father Seraphim also lays out what do we mean by evolutionary theory right because um, evolution the word can take on many different um, I guess meanings in in modern and modern thought um, basically what he says is that um, we mean when we're identifying here evolutionary theory we're kind of, we're saying evolutionary um cosmogony and that is the uh philosophy of how the world had begun okay and that is theories about the origin of the world through complete scientific understanding a a um complete um look at the origin of the world through the physical sciences these theories um, and we may get into this a little bit, but like I said, we're not going to get into depth. These theories find their basis in philosophy and touch on theology, but are not grounded in the realm of science, even though they claim to be. Um, and there's a whole history um, to evolutionary theory and how it has developed. And it makes it very clear that just like we, like we had this, we were talking about base knowledge, right? And we talked about um this kind of instance with the with, with the covid stuff you can be in this place with with uh thousands of people and it'd be safe you can be in this place with five people and it'd be dangerous right um how and how that was interpreted through a certain kind of lens um the same thing is with evolutionary theory it has been interpreted through a philosophical lens a highly philosophical lens and um there are movements even in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, where scientists who would combat these, um, these theories, this philosophy, um, through other means of physical science were uh, axed from places like the Smithsonian um, and other credible um, scientific research um, labs or communities at the time. Right? And so we have to understand there is also an agenda, if you will. Um, it doesn't mean that there is somebody controlling the wheel and putting this agenda in place, but there is a uh, specific thread of philosophy, atheism, um, that is stretched through um, this evolutionary philosophy that has come down to us today. Um, great examples of this, the Nazis used it, right, to promote a certain political ideology, right? They had evolutionary scale, and those who were Slavs, those who were blacks, those who were Jews, 
we're at the very bottom of the scale, right? We have the master race, the high race, the one that needs to continue to have babies and preserve the blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, um, person uh, throughout time. Those are the top of the evolutionary scale. scale. And inherently, evolutionary, evolutionary theory does have this racism in it. I mean, if you ever look at a uh, school textbook of a, the first evolved man, 99% um, of the time, he's black. Um, that's just how it is, right? Um, so it has, it, has, uh, it has its own philosophical biases within it. And so um, there are certain things about it that do not uh, equate with science whatsoever, um, but they're philosophical things that have been handed down. And so when we talk about evolutionary theory or uh, we have certain things that come um, into our, our own um, understanding of Scripture through the eyes of the Father and they contradict um, evolutionary theory, what we're talking about is this um, whole this theory about the origin of the world. There is, of course, and it has been, um, you know, observed through time in natural sciences that there is a, a change in certain um, particular groups or species of animals, right? Um, for instance, you know, fish take on different types of scales or breed in different places according to maybe their natural habitat or a habitat that they have migrated to or whatever it may be. Right, um, the kind of famous one is the different iguanas that Darwin had um, observed, um, things like that. So there are there are definite variations throughout creation. We're not talking about a combat. We're not talking about these things conflicting with the views of the fathers. What we're talking about is the origin of the world, the philosophy that comes from this evolutionary theory, and um, also certain things that are not necessarily scientific, right? Um, and like I said, we're not going to get into this in, in depth. There, there is definitely a case to, to show certain things about how evolutionism has, uh, has a certain agenda and um, it has been, um, certain things have been proven wrong about it and how there is some manipulation to scientific data and how that is approached um, in these natural sciences. There's definitely cases for all of that stuff, um, but that's not what we're going to get into. It's not going to be the, 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 the focus on the course. It's going to be on, on, on um, the, the, the scriptures with the eyes of the fathers, right? So, like I said, we might get into things just like we had talked about. Death cannot exist before the fall, yet evolutionism supposes that death is in existence from the very beginning of the world, right? And that we are products of death through millions of years, right? The reason why this can exist, and this is just a good uh, example, is because when God created the world and he says it is good, he created it out of himself. And the fathers say evil does not exist, just as darkness does not exist. Darkness is only measured by an absence of light, so evil is only measured by absence of goodness, and death is evil, right? So death itself does not exist in God. It is a consequence of us losing God's grace. If death existed from the very beginning and God said it is good, 
That means death is part of God, is an inherent attribute of God. If Christ conquers death by death, he conquers himself. There's all these twisted things that happen in theology, right? Um, so there's definite, you know, conflict that happens. So we'll get it when we touch on evolutionary theory. We'll touch on it in ways like that, right? Um, we're not going to get into depth with it, um, at least through like physical sciences and that kind of a thing.